0: We are back in Acts today, back in Acts chapter 19. We're going to to begin in verse 21 in just a a few minutes here. Chapter 19 in in verse 21, we'll read as we read in just a little bit. We take a turn in the book of Acts. Paul, in, in this first part that we'll read this morning, begins to have eyes for Rome. He's been... He's been working his way through Asia. He's on his third missionary journey now in the city of Ephesus is where we find him here in chapter 19. But Luke tells us as he writes here in the middle of chapter 19, he says that Luke or that Paul now is having a vision, he's having a thought, he's having a, a dream of, of heading off into Rome. He wants to take the message of the gospel to the center of the Roman Empire. And so, the last part of the book, the last eight and a half chapters that we have here are going to begin the march toward the end. And that's where we come here today as well, to the march to the end. Let me review for you just a little bit about chapter 19 as we jump in. Because I think the the picture of what we have, of, of what happened here in Ephesus as Paul came back, if you remember... Paul has finished his second missionary journey. He began his third missionary journey. We have a map of that, I think. He began his third missionary journey where he left from Antioch and he began to travel. He, again, is in the city of Ephesus, which I think is a, uh, there's a next slide there which gives you a little bit of a closer picture of that. He kind of made a beeline. Once he he went to Jerusalem, he, he gave a report back to Antioch and then he made a beeline straight for Ephesus. He wanted to get back. He had previously been there for a little bit with Priscilla and Aquila, had some ministry there and wanted to get back as soon as he could. And so he did. He, he made a beeline back to set up shop and to begin to, to teach and to preach for a while. And that's exactly what he did. Got kicked out of the synagogue, rented another theater that he could speak in and share in and began to do that. Began to preach. Lives began to change. And chapter 19 shows us the picture of the gospel coming to to three different groups. And there was three different reactions, if you remember, from from a couple of weeks ago. He brings brings the gospel. Paul meets up with with some disciples of John, another group of men that were much like Apollos, if you remember earlier. They knew knew the Old Testament. They knew the promise of a Messiah. They knew the ministry of, of John the Baptist, but they didn't understand the whole story. They knew the beginning, they knew that there's was a, a promised Messiah coming, but they didn't know about Jesus. And if they did know about Jesus, they didn't know about his resurrection, they didn't know about the hope that we have in him, they did not for sure know about the Spirit's work in them, or the Spirit that could work in them. They knew a portion of the story, but they didn't know the whole thing. They had a familiarity with the story. They had a familiarity with the gospel, but they didn't understand it all. They haven't understood the whole picture. And I said that these three groups of people that we see here in in Acts chapter 19 are really a microcosm of, of today's church. There are a group of people in today's church who have a familiarity with the Bible, have a familiarity with Scripture. They become inoculated. They know just enough. They have bits and pieces of the story. They understand it. They might even be committed to it, much like these disciples were here, but they have not been changed. The Spirit has not begun to work in them. They understand the idea of the gospel, but they have not been transformed by the gospel. There's a second group of men here in Acts chapter 19, the sons of Skeva. They they see what's happening. They understand that Paul's Jesus is something special and they want to incorporate him into their own, uh, their, own, uh, their own exorcism bandwagon that they're on. And so they begin to wander around there in Ephesus and they're going to cast out demons in the name of Paul's Jesus. They want to use his name for their own financial gain. And so they come to a a demon, and they they cast him out in the name of Paul's Jesus. And the demon turns to them and says, the, the demon inside the possessed man turns to them and says, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? And that demon then proceeds to give them a whipping. In fact, we talked about, as you read it there, a whipping so bad that they entered the fight with their pants on and they exited the fight with their pants off. There was no doubt who the winner was in this fight. And I told you that day that there are many people in the church who are pretending to be people of faith, pretending to know Jesus' name, pretending to understand it for whatever reason. But that ultimately is only going to lead to destruction. It's only going to lead to a whooping like what these seven men received. It only leads to ultimate destruction. We need to know more than the name of Jesus. We need to know the transforming power of Jesus. We need to know the redemption that comes through the name of Jesus. The third group that we saw in chapter 19 was was a group of believers. They understood Jesus. They understood the gospel. They have trusted in Jesus. They have even been changed By the Holy Spirit at work in them, but they still dabbled in some of their practices that they had before they became believers. They were still involved with witchcraft. They still, they loved Jesus, but they still treasured their sin. They loved Jesus, but they loved the culture that they were in. They loved Jesus, but they also loved the thrill of the spell and of the seance in the back room. And all of a sudden, as they see all of these things beginning to happen, the sons of Sceva, all of these things joining together here in chapter 19, these believers, they all of a sudden realize they cannot any longer play around with what is going on in their lives. It's time has come for them to have full confession, full repentance, and so they bring They bring their witchcraft, they bring their books, they bring all these things. They have a large book-burning bonfire, and they burn approximately $10 million worth of books in a fire. This was their real, true, come-to-Jesus moment. They realized they needed to live lives of complete surrender, and so they do. All of this takes place in the city of Ephesus, Ephesus, as I told you, is a a cosmopolitan city. It's the the Los Angeles of today's culture. It's the the place where the the movie stars would have been, the popular people, the, the cultural center of the world at that time. Paul Rushed there, he loved to go to the large cities where there was lots of trade and lots of people coming in and going out so that he could share the gospel and begin to plant churches then, hopefully in the smaller areas that surrounded those cities. And so Paul rushes to Ephesus to begin to tell about Jesus. When he gets there, he has these things that we just pointed out happen in chapter 19. And they all happen in the shadow of the temple of Artemis. I told you a couple weeks ago about this temple. It's a big part of the riot that happens today in Ephesus, or in the story of today, here in Acts chapter 19. The temple of Artemis is a, is a building, a, a, a temple that was dedicated to the goddess Artemis. She was the daughter of Zeus. She was the twin sister of Apollo, the god Apollo. She was the goddess of fertility. She was the goddess of. Of, of animals and creation. And so people came and they, they worshipped her, thinking that she would bless their hunts, that she would bless their crops, that she would care for their needs in creation. There was a legend in Ephesus that said, uh, the goddess Artemis fell from the sky and landed there in Ephesians, or in Ephesus. To the Ephesians. And it became their, the Ephesians' job to watch over her and to protect her. And so what they did was they built, they built this temple of Artemis. It was a, a grand and glorious temple. It was 450 feet long, it was 225 feet wide, it was 60 feet tall, it was held up by 120 marble columns. It was huge, it was beautiful, it was magnificent. In fact, this temple of Artemis here in Ephesus is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was quite a place. And they built this temple, again, so that they could watch over their goddess, watch over this goddess who had fallen from the sky and landed in their city. It was their job to watch over her, to worship her. Paul, I'm sure, had that in mind as he writes his letter later to the Ephesians. He knows that this temple is in the background of wherever they are in the city. He knows, he knows exactly the attitude, the love of the people of Ephesus, the love of the Ephesians, for Artemis and for her temple, for the goddess herself. And so, as I pointed to in Ephesians chapter 4 a couple of weeks ago, Paul writes this when he writes to the people of Ephesians, he says, There's one body, there's one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. All, But grace was given to each of one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led the host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And then Paul says this, in saying, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, to the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. He's reminding the Ephesians. There's only one God who sent his one and only son. That son descended to the earth that he might fulfill all things. But he doesn't just descend to the earth to have a building built and shaped around him that can be declared to all the people. He came with a whole different Intend to hold different motive. We read that in Paul's letter to the Philippians, thinking probably those same kind of thoughts when he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul says, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead made himself nothing. He came down. He descended not to be watched over, not to be protected, not to have a shrine built around him, but he came to become obedient to death, even death on a cross. So that one day... So that one day every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess. The glory will be his, but it's not going to be in a temple built here in Ephesus. The glory will be his around the whole earth. It's all about Jesus, Paul is telling him. That was his message. That's what he's preaching. He is the one. Jesus is the one that Paul is pointing to. But not everybody sees that. Not everybody understands that. Not everybody hears the name of Jesus. That's where we jump into here in the rest of chapter 19 in the book of Acts. Not everybody understands that. And to to really understand, to really understand what happens in this riot here in chapter 19, we we have to remember the idea that that we've talked about a couple of different times here in the book of Acts. But it's this idea that, that we are created by the ultimate creator. We are created by God in his image. And so there is a bit of creator in us. There is creation in us as well. Our nature is to invent our nature is to craft our nature is to make our nature is to create things god is well reflected he's well reflected in our creativity we are also called to be creators but there's a limit to our creativity there's our limit to our ability to create there's a, a, a joke, you probably have heard it, but there's, there's a group of scientists that, that decide they have, they have as much knowledge as God. They have the skills of God, and so they, they call out to God and they say, we're, we're pretty skilled, we're pretty knowledgeable, we, we also believe that we can create just like you did. We can create man, we can create man just like you did. And so God comes and they have this meeting together. They're going to have a contest. And God turns to them and says, If you think you're so powerful, if you're so creative, if you have the ability to do this, I'll let you even begin our contest. And so the scientists reach down and they grab some dirt in order to form man, just like God did there in Genesis chapters one and two. And God says, Whoa, 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 you gotta start with your own dirt. The idea is that God has created everything. And even if we could get to that place where we could turn dirt into human, we still are only using the pieces that God has given us from the very beginning. God is the ultimate creator. He's the only, he's the only true creator. All of, our creati- all of our creativity, all of our crafting, all of our making, all of our building only Comes from the foundation that he's given us in the very beginning. We create. But often, in our creativity, and in this God given part of his image that he has put in us to be creative and to build, too often we go too far in that and we begin to create things that we worship. That we idolize, that we love, that we put in place of God. One theologian says it this way He says, In the heart of every human is an idol factory. In the heart of every human is an idol factory. We want to worship things. And so we so often turn our worship from God, from the Creator to the creation, to things that we begin to make with our own hands or ideas that we begin to form in our own minds. Our creations become our gods. They become our idols. We love our own creation, our own created things. We've seen God's glory. It's all around us. We know his creation and we know his creative spirit that's inside of us, but we repress that knowledge. And we begin to think that that originated in us, that that is all about us. That's really Paul's argument. When he writes to the the Romans in chapter one, he makes this same argument that I've just shared with you. We're gonna read it here in Romans chapter one. It's on the screen as well. Paul writes this, he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they know God, they did not honor him as God, nor did they give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We've seen God. We've seen his creation. We've seen his creativity. We know that that's inside of us. And so we're without excuse when we begin to turn and worship our own created things instead of the creator. The idea that humans make and then worship their own creation, that humans make and worship idols that come from their own hands, that's what brings us here to Acts chapter 19. We're going to read it. I just have a couple of points I want to make from it this morning. Let's read in Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About the time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines to Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Those he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear, not only in Ephesus, but also in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's a danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion. They rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Some had cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess." If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are pro Let them bring charges against one another. For if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly it's pretty easy i think for us to see and to understand this story demetrius he's the craftsman he's he's the leader of the of the union per se he sees that that paul has been speaking he's he's been here in ephesus he's been teaching he's been telling people about the one true god he's been telling them about jesus and their eyes are being lifted they no longer they no longer are worshipping creation or created gods. Instead, their eyes have been turned to the creator. They see Jesus as the one through whom and in whom all things have been created. That's the God that they worship. They worship his son, Jesus. And Demetrius sees that, and it's hitting his pocketbook. And so he gathers together the other craftsmen, and he has three arguments that he makes to these craftsmen. He says, listen carefully to these things, Demetrius says. He says, first, Paul's preaching is threatening our business. His preaching is threatening our pocketbooks. And then Demetrius says, the second argument is that what Paul says is that handmade gods, which you and I are making, he says, Paul says that those handmade gods aren't really gods. And third, and this is where he begins to really try to raise emotions. He says, not only does Paul say these things and and try to steal business from us, but he's also trying to steal the glory of our world-renowned goddess Artemis and her temple. He's trying to steal her glory. And so he begins to stir up the crowd. Paul doesn't have a response here in Acts chapter 19. We don't know for sure what his response would be. In fact, his disciples, his friends, his companions pull him back and don't even let him enter into the theater to give a response. But I think we all have a pretty good idea of what Paul's response would be. I think Paul's response to Demetrius would be one where he says, Yeah. I might be stealing money from your pocketbooks, but you need to not argue with me, but instead you need to repent that you're carving these idols, you're carving these gods when God gives us pretty clear instructions that there's to be no other God before us, there's to be no other God that we worship except him. I think Paul would have said, you claim that these handmade gods are gods, but they have no power. They have no ability to do anything. There's only one God. He's only been manifested in one person, and that person is Jesus, and that's the name that we lift up. I think in response to Demetrius' argument, he would have said, I'm not stealing any glory from Artemis. I'm giving glory to the one who it really belongs to the name of Jesus and the hope that we have in God the Father. We don't know what Paul's response is, but we do know what the response of Demetrius and his companions are. In fact, it becomes more than just the craftsmen. It's the the whole townspeople. Their response is not repentance. The craftsmen do not say you know what? Maybe we should repent. Maybe we should use our skills. God has given us hands that can create. He's given us the ability to build. He's given us this creativity inside of us. Maybe we should turn that into something else. Maybe we should use those gifts and skills in different ways. Maybe we should repent from these little gods that we're creating and worship the one true God. They could have said that, but they did not. Instead, The response of the craftsmen, the response of the townspeople is pure and unbridled anger. They're furious. They're angry. And it's no surprise to you and I that that's the way they respond. We talk about this often here at Richland. The things that give us life when they begin to be pushed on, when the shiny things that we've been hoping in, when the idols, when the ideas and the items that have become our idols when they begin to be stripped away, we rarely respond, immediately at least, in repentance. But we often respond in anger. And in fact, that is one of the signs for us to begin to check our hearts. The things that give us life when they're pushed upon and our response is anger, we can see and know and understand that we're finding life, we're finding hope in the wrong things, we've begun to worship the creation rather than the creator. That anger in the townspeople begins to erupt. It leads to, to chaos. They begin to shout, Great is Artemis in, Eph- in, in Ephesus. They shout it. They, they head to the theater that seats about 25,000 people. And they on their way, they grab up a couple of Paul's companions, Gaius and Aristarchus, and they drag them before the crowd. And Paul sees them there. Paul wants to go in. He wants to make a defense. He wants to to give an explanation. Paul's been teaching and preaching this whole time in a theater just down the road. Paul wants to jump in and people see that if Paul were to do that, the response would not be good. So they pull Paul back. They don't let him go. One principle I don't want to spend a lot of time on this we don't have a lot of time this morning to do that but, but I do want you to see this I, I, I want you to, to see that Paul doesn't go in that sometimes there are fights that are unwise for us to jump into even even when lives are at stake Paul's persuaded not to go in not to try to give an explanation it wasn't going to be received well In our day and age where it's pretty easy to pick a fight, it's pretty easy to jump into the chaos, to jump into the fray, to make our point, sometimes the fight's better to be left without jumping into it. Even when lives are at stake, Paul saw that it might be better. Those disciples saw that it might be better not to jump in. Paul does not. He's not able to go in. They keep him from from being a part of it. But Alexander, one of the Jews, he jumps in. You see, the Jews, they were too often associated with the Christians. And he said, I don't don't want to be associated with Paul and his message. Our, Our Judaism is different than his Christianity. We are not a part of the way. And so Alexander stands up to distance himself from Paul. And as the crowd sees Alexander, Paul or the crowd, as they see Alexander the Jew, they began to shout even louder, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours, Luke tells us, they chant, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Finally, one of the town clerks gets up and is able to, to settle the crowd. And his argument, as he settles the crowd, his explanation to the crowd, his ability to get them to quiet down, is this, he says, guys, people in the crowd, everyone, everyone knows Artemis. Everyone knows about this magnificent temple that's here in our city. It's foolish, he says, for us to think that there are people in the world that don't know the goddess Artemis. It's foolish for us to think that there's some way that this guy, Paul, could steal her glory. It's foolish for us to think that these Christians, this small group of people, that they could destroy the temple of Artemis. Her glory is fine, her glory is secure. If you have a real argument with her, take it up with the legal authorities, but this is not the time or the place. Ephesus is going to be fine. The temple of Artemis is going to stand forever, is his idea. No one will steal the glory of Artemis. The worship team's gonna come as we close this morning. But I want you to have that picture Artemis, she'll never be forgotten. The temple will always remain. This little guy with this little idea that he's been preaching about in this theater down the street, that's the short-lived idea. That's what the town's clerk says. But you and I know that today, if you were to go to Ephesus, you would find... The theater where this, where this riot took place, it's still there. But you know what's not there? The temple of Artemis. The statue of Artemis is not there. But we're here. The idea that Paul is sharing about The gospel of Jesus, the creator, not the creation. That's what we're talking about today. Artemis is faded. The temple has come down, but the church and the word and the gospel, preached by Paul, shared through his disciples, still here today, and we rejoice in it together. The worship team is going to lead us this morning in worship as we close. Will you stand with me as we sing
1: The sun cannot compare to the glory of The sun cannot compare to the glory of your love. There is no shadow in your presence. No mortal man would dare to stand before your throne, before the whole. may you receive
0: To know this morning. Most commentators say that in the letters of John, he makes reference to a man named Demetrius. And most commentators would say that Demetrius, that John is referring to in his letters, is probably this same Demetrius that we see here, who does ultimately come to faith, uses the gifts of his hands and the skills of his hands to worship the Creator rather than the creation. At the end of his letter to the Ephesians, Paul writes this. It's our benediction for this morning. He says, Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Thank you for coming this morning.